who you are at work, after hours, and back at home. Exploring every layer, finding out what makes you uniquely you, and letting that shine back out into the world. It's Authentic 365, a podcast that takes a glimpse into how some of the most inspiring people among us express themselves and make magic happen. My name is Lauren Gray, and I'll be your host today. I'm co-hosting with my colleague, Lou McAfee. Lou and I are bringing our own millennial and Gen Z queer and trans perspectives to the table for this conversation. At Edelman, we focus on counsel related to societal issues and DEI. We are part of Edelman's Outfront Task Force, providing clients with counsel on complex LGBTQ issues and our employee network group, Edelman Equal. I would like to extend a very special welcome to our guests, Representative Zoe Zephyr and journalist Aaron Reed. And I would like to also congratulate this powerhouse couple on their recent engagement. Welcome. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Representative Zoe Zephyr is Montana's first transgender lawmaker and has stated that the best way to fight for social and economic justice is to get into the room where the laws are being written. In a recent controversy, Zoe's fellow lawmakers voted to bar her from the House floor, effectively silencing her for the rest of the 2023 session after Zoe spoke out against lawmakers for voting to ban gender-affirming care for trans youth. Erin Reed is an independent journalist and activist with a long history of advocacy for LGBTQ plus rights, racial justice, and bodily autonomy. She has created an informed consent access map for transgender people that has been used over 4 million times to provide hormone therapy to this population. Her Erin in the Morning substack, uh, to which I am a subscriber, <laughs> contains influential independent coverage that shapes conversation and policy debate particularly regarding transgender health care. So let's dive into today's discussion. Representative Zephyr, I'd like to start by speaking about what I just mentioned, what the Associated Press called a high-profile instance of one party in a state house determining who can be heard during legislative debate. As the situation was unfolding amidst chants from protesters of let her speak, could you share what was going on for you behind the scenes what were you thinking and feeling in this moment? What were you hearing from your constituents, supporters, and others? And what, if anything, has shifted for you since that time? Thank you. You know, you speak to what the impact was, and you said in the intro about silencing. And I think the first thing that was going through my mind as the events were unfolding was, what was the right throwing away to achieve policy goals? What were they willing to cast to the side? And we had seen attacks on the judiciary. We had seen attacks on administrative panels, on healthcare for folks across the spectrum of needs. And I think what we saw in this instance was a very clear example that they were willing to toss democracy aside and specifically representative democracy, 11,000 constituents of mine who no longer got representation on the House floor. That was what was going through my head. It was what, and as I began as I was expelled from the chamber, my thoughts were, how do I stay as close to the chamber? How do I try to get some semblance of representation for my community? And that meant for me sitting on the public bench right outside the House floor so that I could try to interact with lawmakers as they were coming and going so that I could catch people and say, hey, my constituents are hearing this. And yes, they're going to lose my voice on the House floor. But can you try to give them, you know, voice their concerns on the issues that came forward? And more broadly, 
I think we saw, as you mentioned, a pattern of not just me being you know, a trans lawmaker speaking out on uh, trans healthcare in this moment, but we saw uh, in Tennessee, black lawmakers speaking out against the effects of gun violence in Tennessee and being expelled. And I think we see a pattern of groups who are most impacted by harmful policies or lack of policies when it comes to, to gun reform, speaking out and those in power on the right not wanting to, it's not, it not being enough to get bills across, but saying we will not stand for any dissent whatsoever. Just to follow up on that, what was that experience like being sit- or seated physically on the periphery in that moment? I saw some footage where you'd been approached by someone who was saying they felt that being there might be a security issue, et cetera. What sort of opposition or response did you encounter while you were physically there? When I was sitting on the bench initially, the Speaker of the House came out and told me that he did not want me on the public bench, that I was to sit in the minority leader office away from view. And I said, I want to be as close to the people's house. Am I allowed in the public spaces? He said, no, you need to go. And I asked for clarification from my minority leader who came up, spoke with him and said, Representative Zephyr can sit on the bench. Again, for me, the question was, how do I stay as close to the people's house so that I can do the work that I was sent there to do on behalf of my constituents? That's so powerful. And to hear about the 11,000 voices that were effectively silenced as well in that moment, just a, a really important conversation for us to have about our democracy and representation. So thank you so much for sharing more about that experience. Switching to Aaron, one of the reasons I subscribe personally to Aaron in the morning is your very steady drumbeat of researched nuanced policy reporting on the most pressing issues impacting the community. What are your thoughts on calls for greater diversity and inclusion in the field of journalism? As an industry, are there ways that you think the media collectively falls down on reporting on trans issues? And do you have any advice for your colleagues? Absolutely. I mean, the reason why so many people follow my content and follow my work is because of the massive shortcomings in journalism around the United States on this issue. And this is from bottom to top. You know, whenever it comes to local journalism, which is not just an LGBTQ issue, but an issue with local journalism at large, and that we are not seeing the support for our local news organizations or local newspapers, et cetera, um, local journalism has been suffering a, a bit of a crisis, you know, over the last few decades and in lower readership and corporate takeovers and in the lack of ability to cover a lot of this stuff in depth. And so often in these, in these hearings, whenever these anti-trans bills and anti-LGBTQ bills are being heard, there is often not a local journalist covering it. And if there is, that person is not a LGBTQ journalist or a, a person who has in-depth knowledge of transgender issues. And so this is why I do what I do. Uh, often I would jump into these hearings and I would cover them and I could find, you know, the, the dog whistles that are often missed by, if there is even a local journalist in the room that are often missed by journalists. You know, I, I track these hearings, I, I clip them, I try to make sure that people understand the things that are being said in our state houses across the country. And there are many reasons for this. Uh, one reason that I do this is that it's important to keep a record of what's going on in these meetings, an easy to find record. We just saw in Florida where a legislator's words in, spoken during 
one of the anti-trans debates in the committee in Florida was used to overturn or to block a gender-affirming care ban in court in Florida. And that's why it's so important that like, we make sure that we are watching what they say and that we always have eyes on it. And so that's, that's why I do what I do. But the, the shortcomings aren't just at the local level, which, you know, again, local journalism needs as much support as possible, but they also go all the way up to our largest organizations, you know, the New York Times, The Atlantic, um, The Economist. There are several outlets that have had a very poor track record in covering transgender issues. If they allow coverage of transgender issues, it's often being given to cisgender journalists. Uh, trans journalists are seen as, as too biased to be able to cover issues affecting the trans community, uh, which, you know, applying that same standard to so many other different minority groups, people would very clearly see how problematic that is. On top of that, these larger media organizations often do a very poor job at presenting pr proportionality so, for instance, you know, they'll speak about detransitioners, people who no longer identify as trans. And the reality of detransitioners is that the, the vast majority, according to polling, of people who detransition do so because they're not accepted by their families, because they're not accepted in their places of work. And yet the vast majority of news coverage of detransitioners is about the dwindling few who decided that transition was not right for them for whatever reason. And so... You know, we, we see the the way in which news coverage fails the trans community. And, and the news articles that are released in these failing fashions are used in courtrooms and in legislative rooms to help pass these laws. You know, we, we hear these groups portrayed as independent parent groups whenever, like, they're heavily funded by large right-wing organizations. And it's, it's the lack of disclosure, the lack of, of proportionality, the lack of of having trans voices in the stories and having trans voices be the ones telling the stories that I think we see massive shortcomings in coverage. And that's why we saw over a thousand journalists and contributors to the New York Times write an open letter addressing all of the shortcomings and addressing the ways in which the outlet was not even abiding by their own standards. So yeah, I think that's, that's what I'm seeing whenever it comes to media. Such an important point about the dog whistles and what an incredibly powerful example about Florida and the impact of some of this language and how that reporting is so essential to making sure that we're following these things through the process and the impact of that. This, this next question is really for the both of you. In May, there was news coverage that Erin thwarted a swatting attempt after police received a false report claiming that she was being held hostage. Can you share a little bit more about what happened in this situation and particularly relevant to our audience of communicators and those who advise other influencers? What advice you might have for other high profile leaders, particularly in the trans community, who are receiving ongoing threats of violence and harassment? Of course, I was actually in a podcast very much like I am right now. Whenever I got a phone call from uh, my local police, I missed the first phone call. Uh, thank God, whenever they called again, I, I was like, well, the same number is calling uh, repeatedly, so I should answer this. And I let the podcast go for a moment, answered it, and found out that, you know, the police said that there was a, um, a essentially, they, they believed that there was a swatting attempt being done and that somebody had called in stating that I was being held hostage and, you know, I, I knew that this was a possibility because I had seen other transgender activists, LGBTQ activists 
be the targets of swatting attempts, of bomb threats, of numerous different forms of political violence. And I knew to contact my local law enforcement months in advance to let them know that, hey, if you get concerning messages about me, you know, I am very much a target for this, for, for swatting. And you should check in with me, you know, before you rush into my home with guns. There have been people whose lives were taken due to swatting attempts before. And thank God, you know, my local police department, they, they did that. They called me. They were able to, to sort things out with me. Uh, but like the same thing at the same time happened to, happened to Zoe. And she has a profile in Montana. I think that they very quickly realized that Zoe's effort in Missoula was not being held hostage or targeted in Missoula uh, whenever she was working in Helena at the time. But, you know, this is, it's unfortunate, but this is becoming increasingly common for anybody who's active on LGBTQ issues. The rhetoric out there is extreme. Uh, Platforms like Twitter owned by Elon Musk, who are mainstreaming hate, who are allowing direct threats of violence to proliferate on the platform. We have advertisers that are still willing, willing to advertise on the platform and give money while these threats of violence are occurring, while this hate speech is occurring. And it feels like in some cases, a lot of corporations have thrown up their their hands and denied any sort of corporate responsibility around this issue. We saw at the beginning of Pride an attempt at corporate responsibility where Matt Walsh tried to live stream the anti-trans What is a Woman documentary and advertisers like stood up against that and said that they didn't want their ads alongside that. Uh, But then... Elon Musk fired the head of trust and safety uh, that was running, that was running essentially the, that was banning what is a woman from being uh, pinned to the top. And immediately after that, none of the advertisers seemed to care. You know, the advertisers seemed to continue to advertise on the site. And so, you know, this is, this is broad. Uh, I think that hate speech is proliferating on our social media platforms. I think that um, we need people to continue to put pressure in all areas of uh, responsibility on our platforms to do better about this. And until things change, like I don't see this, I don't see me getting any less threats of violence. Thank you for sharing that experience. And the hate speech that we have seen um, on social media this year amid this rise of anti-LGBTQ legislation has been um, overwhelming. And so Erin, I'd really like to ask you more about your role as a TikTok creator and how um, you engage with your audience. Your, your videos show a green light when you are providing commentary on positive news and a red light when you are sharing negative news for the community. This approach allows people to opt in or out of content that can be upsetting or emotionally difficult at times. So what advice do you have for the next wave of influencers on how to develop relevant approach, approaches like this that communicate greater inclusivity and allow people to opt in and out of content as they're prepared for it? Of course, you know, and it's interesting because whenever I had first done this, I, it, it was actually not my intent. It, it was something that I kind of fell into doing, but realized very quickly the good that it was doing for the community that follows me. And so to let people understand exactly what, what it is we're talking about here, I have LED lightings behind me whenever I'm um, giving my uh, TikTok videos, whenever I'm talking about issues that affect the community. And, you know, very early on, this was just me trying to create a colorful set design and a pretty background. And I very quickly um, realized that like, as I was delivering information, often if I was delivering bad information, 
I would set the mood lighting to red or yellow. If I was delivering good information, it was green. If I was talking um, about historical information or, or giving like informational content that was neither good nor bad, just interesting, uh, I would set it to purple or blue. And as I started to release my videos, I very quickly started to notice people thanking me, saying, hey, Aaron, thank you so much for content warning your videos and with your with your colors. I, I love it. And thank you so much. And then I realized that like that is what I was doing. Red meant that like if somebody saw a red light in my background, they knew what they were going to receive. And and this is also, I think, especially helpful on a con on a on a platform like TikTok where you know you're scrolling through videos and all of a sudden it's information in your face instantaneously. And so, you know, in my case, sometimes that information is bad news. And so it could be, you know, bad law in your face immediately. But if you're scrolling through a TikTok feed and all of a sudden the very first thing that you see is a red light and me, you've got an idea that you're about to receive that bad information and you can press pause. You can, before you hear anything, just continue to scroll if you're not in the right mindset for that. Or you can bookmark it and save it for later. And I think that this is like, this has been enormously helpful for me. For, for the community that follows me. I think that people don't have to unfollow me because sometimes I report bad news if they know that they can just skip over the bad news. And I think that that's, you know, I think that especially right now, given that we have information from the Trevor Project showing that 86% of transgender teens and youth have uh, seen a deterioration in their mental health and their anxiety and depression levels over anti-trans bills, I think that it's important to give them that option and to give them a little bit of a warning whenever you're going to discuss really heavy issues that could, um, you know, hurt their mental state of mind, especially right now as we are all just trying to get by. And so uh, I think that like finding clever things like that and working it into working it into your design and not making it intrusive, but making it very easy and intuitive to understand uh, is something that like people should do more. And I, I, I did without even realizing it. And it turned out to be like aesthetically pleasing, but also useful. I've heard of other ways that people have done it. Like I've heard of people wearing their hat in certain ways. And I know that there are other TikTokers that have adopted very, you know, similar means of, of non-intrusive, but informational ways of signifying the content that you're about to speak about. I absolutely love that. And as a watcher of your content. I greatly appreciate it myself. Um, I, I just think it's so important, especially with the mental health impact of, the, of this legislation that we're seeing. Representative Zephyr, this next one is for you. The LGBTQ Victory Institute's Out for America report found that just 0.2% of elected officials nationwide identify as LGBTQ+. How did you decide to run for office? And what advice would you have for queer people who are considering a run, but maybe don't know exactly how to get started? You know, I started, I had been working as an activist in my community. I'd been working as an administrator at the University of Montana as a dance instructor around town. And I had been working as best I could uh, for my community of Missoula. And it had led me to testifying at the legislature. Um, and I testified and I watched both in the committees I was at and in the governor's office, people who felt like they were putting their fingers in their ears. They did not want to hear um, the impacts legislation would have on the communities the legislation was about. And then I watched multiple bills pass by one vote. 
And I remember watching those pass by one vote and thinking to myself, if we are really, truly going to move the needle on, an, on the issues that are important to me, we need people in the room who can speak directly to those issues, not secondhand, but speak directly to the issues and the impacts they have. And so I met with my legislators um, and I met with members of my community uh, in Missoula. And I said, is this the path for me? Is this the place to go? And I got um, resounding support. And so I decided to run and off to the races I went. I think for folks who are looking to run or how to get involved politically, I'll start to say, if you want to get involved politically, amazing. Thank you. It takes so much courage and uh, a little self-sacrifice to do political work. But the important parts, especially in today's um, political climate, are first and foremost, make sure you are solid in who you are and what you believe in. That is first and foremost, because that will be, um, if you are not, you will be pulled apart in a thousand different directions um, by people either gassing you up or, or pushing you down. Um, secondly, if you want to run for something, make sure that you are rooted in your community. You know, I often got questions of how hard was it to campaign as a trans person? And I said, well, I was actually, I was campaigning in a district where I knew folks, where I understood the district because I, I spent the last decade busing through the district every day, going to farmer's markets, park cleanups, working uh, right just outside the district. And that makes a difference um, in terms of how familiar you are with the needs and how easy it is to have the conversations with people. And so if you are connected deeply and truly with the community that you are hoping to represent, you will find that you'll feel that fire in your heart that says, you know, I'm gonna kick down the door and I'm gonna get into the room where the laws are being written. But if you're rooted in community, you'll find that you go to kick the door down and someone is already opening it for you. Because if you're rooted in community, people will invite you in to do that work. I so I love, love that. that. <laughs> <laughs> Very that cool. So I, I'm so glad that you you received that open door from your community and that you had that support as you were running. And that's so powerful to know for other young LGBTQ folks trying to get involved with politics. I want to go back to a statistics that Erin actually brought up a moment ago. The Trevor Project recently released 2023 data that nearly one in three LGBTQ young people say that their mental health was poor most of the time or always due to anti-LGBTQ plus policies or legislation. This is an absolutely crushing statistic. What is both of your messages to transgender youth in this moment? Is there something that either of you wish that somebody would have said to you as a young person? I was a trans child. I was eight years old whenever I first realized my gender identity, and I was 13 whenever I first started using the name Erin. Uh, I used it in online spaces. That was the age in which I learned the word transgender and finally had a word for who I was. And it was hard back then. It was very hard. And it was impossible to transition as a, as a trans youth in the 1990s in red rural Louisiana. It was fairly impossible to transition as a trans youth anywhere. Um, and, and I think that for me, I saw how hard 
the road was. But I also was able to hold on to like a small part of myself. And, and I was able to nurture that. And I was able to find people who loved me. I was able to find my community. I was able to find my community online. That was where that was where my community was in, in that time. But I still found the people who made who made having to deal with all of the all of the just fear around being LGBTQ uh, more bearable. And I think that for trans youth today, especially the ones that are stuck in situations now, like I was stuck in back then, is that like your job is to survive, to get to the point that you can transition and find your community. And for some people that is finding their community online and finding small ways to, you know, get through the, the bad times. And for others who are fortunate enough to live in places where they have community or fortunate enough to have parents that love them and that accept them for who they are, it's to try to be that voice for other people who don't. And I think that as things hopefully continue to improve, it's in standing up for one another that we're going to finally see change. I also want to say that, you know, this is a message that's not just for trans and LGBTQ youth. It's a message for cis ones and allies, straight cisgender, straight, straight cisgender youth, because they too need to see the, just the difficulties that their peers, their classmates, that their friends are, are under right now. And as they grow older, they need to be asking themselves the question of how do I ensure that we're building a better world? for everybody. Thankfully, I've seen that. You know, I've seen youth, Gen Z is the most accepting generation for LGBTQ people in history. 20% of Gen Z identifies as LGBTQ. And we've seen mass student walkouts in places like Florida and Virginia. We've seen it in Kentucky. I saw the Trans Day Visibility Marches were entirely youth-led under 25, a group called Queer Youth Assemble. And they were the largest trans day of visibility marches at least in the last five years, if not ever. Uh, they were in all 50 states and in towns and cities ranging from 5,000 population all the way to 5 million. And I think that, you know, collectively, youth especially need to, need to hold on to that sense of social responsibility and nurture it and ensure that, you know, whenever they are gaining or whenever they get more power in this world, uh, they help the, they help others who, who need it. I'll chime in as well. You know, you bring up the statistic uh, and I think it's easy for people to hear a statistic and it kind of, you recognize what it is and then it washes over. And I just want to point out that that statistic, we see what that means on the ground. And in the state of Montana, I think of two examples. The first of which is every legislator in Montana received an email from an ER doctor, a letter saying they had a trans, um, trans youth come in, um, suicidal ideation, suicidal attempts. And in, in questioning that trans youth saying, hey, what's going on? Like, what's, what's the matter? How can we sort of set up a plan moving forward? You know, a safety plan, a plan for mental health. What the trans youth kept saying was my state doesn't want me. And that was their reason. That the 
directly the reason why they were in the emergency room for suicidal ideation. We had another example of a trans teenager who attempted to take her own life while watching one of the anti-trans hearings. And we know that was the case because that is how her mother found her in her bedroom with the hearing still up on the screen. These bills hurt people. They hurt people when they are passed by the policies that come forward and the topics when they are brought up have direct impacts on the mental health and well-being of our community as well. My message, it's why, you know, in my last message on Senate Bill 99, where I was ultimately censured around, uh, I was trying to hold people accountable saying, if you vote on this, there is blood on your hands. But it is also why in my first speech on Senate Bill 99 on the House floor, I turned to the camera and I said, my message for trans youth was stay alive. Just stay alive because we are going to win. We are seeing wins in our communities. As Aaron mentioned, we're seeing growing acceptance um, uh, from community, particularly among younger people. We are seeing a, we're seeing a realization that LGBTQ people and trans people specifically are not just in your communities, we are part of your communities. Whether you are working in an office space, whether you're going to your coffee shop, or whether you're in the governor's mansion in Montana, whose own child is non-binary. And I think my, I see the wins, wins there. I see us getting wins in the courts as we go on. We talked about wins recently in Florida and Tennessee. I expect to see more of those as we go forward. And then I see, I expect ultimately for us to see legislative wins. But I know if you are a queer youth, if you are a trans youth looking at this country and seeing the attacks and the sort of increasing um, dangerous rhetoric, it is, it is understanding that there is fear and there is despair. But it's also important to note that there are people fighting as hard as we can to keep you safe and to make the world one in which we can be comfortable to be ourselves and be proud to call home. And I think when in those moments you feel that fear and you think, you know, as MLK said, you know, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. If there is hope that you can hold on to, it is that there are people all around you working together to bend that arc of, of history towards justice. And we're doing it to make the world better for you. That's so important to remember that. So deeply powerful. And I think such an important um, setup for our, unfortunately, very, very last question for you both. One thing we're hearing all the time from allies is what can they do? What steps can they take? And as well, especially since you mentioned this earlier, Aaron, for business, what are things that we want business or corporations to do as well to engage on? Absolutely. There's a lot. I mean, there, there's so much you can do. Number one, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk first about people and like what you can do as individuals, because I have a whole separate message for businesses. Um, for people, ensure that you're supporting your local LGBTQ communities. A lot of times, even if you're in like the best state for LGBTQ rights, you got to make sure that those protections are reaching the people that need them the most. The, the people who may, may not have all of the resources that you have and to ensure that your civil rights are not violated. And sometimes that might look like advocating for, you know, 
your city government to have a civil rights navigator who can help with the cases there. Sometimes that might look like providing support to your local LGBTQ homeless shelter. Like there, There's so much work to be done at the local level everywhere. And it's in local communities that we have often found justice in our communities, in our LGBTQ community. Also, ensure that your media diet has queer and trans people in it. There are so many good queer and trans content creators, not just on like social media, I'm talking writers, singers, actors, people who are people who are creating for you and, and who need to be represented in your media diet. There's a really good documentary that I highly recommend called Disclosure. It's on Netflix and it's all about how trans people have been portrayed in media narratives and how we have internalized that as a society. You know, prior to 2010, if you saw a trans person on television, they were either the butt of a joke or the victim or, per, per, uh, victim or perpetrator of a crime. And that's it. Like, that's how it, it was either Saturday Night Live had its pat. And the whole point of the joke was here's a gender nonconforming, um, ugly person. You know, you, you would see punchline, woman is actually a man. Like that, that is, it's almost, agree, it's egregious how many movies and TV shows use this trope prior to around 2010. You know, there's a lot of good, Kim Petras, you can, you can listen to Kim Petras. She's a transgender musician. You can watch Amy Schneider, you know, on Jeopardy. Um, you can watch Lauren Cox, watch Elliot Page. You know, there are so many people out there who are queer and trans who are doing good work and who are, who are entertaining to watch and who are fun to watch. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to move, you know, I still see corporations try to hold conferences in Florida. Florida is going to literally be impossible for trans people to, to travel to without getting arrested if they want to use the bathroom. And in July 1st, there's a bathroom bill, uh, there's a bathroom bill there that will come into effect and it will charge trans people using the bathroom of their gender identity with a one year prison sentence. What does it say that like your company is going to hold a meeting in Florida? That literally is saying to all of your trans attendees, we don't want you to come. We know that the state is dangerous to you and we don't want you to come. And Florida is, was a target for these laws because of how business friendly it is, because they knew that they could, they could, they could count on companies to make a decision that would benefit their stakeholders economically rather than their trans employees and the trans people that they care about. And so, you know, what are trans people worth on your bottom line? And I just think that companies have such a responsibility right now to, to push back against this. Same with on social media. You know, we see, we've seen a return, a full return of advertising on Twitter from all of the companies that are going to paint Lego, rainbow logos on their, on their logos. And yet I still see their ads right beside the libs of TikTok right beside Andrew Tate. And this isn't just, you know, anti-LGBTQ hate. This is all kinds of hate. This is hatred towards women. This is hatred towards BIPOC individuals, hatred towards immigrants. There's, there's responsibility here. And we saw what, what good corporate responsibility can do in North Carolina. They beat an anti-trans bathroom ban in North Carolina in 2016 because so many corporations stood up against it. So just, you know, make sure that you are looking at your social responsibility around this issue. It is so important. <coughs> I don't know if you have anything to add. Oh, always. 
uh, <laughs> I'll dovetail on the uh, media diet and say there are a lot of uh, LGBTQ creators um, who are working on shows. What's you know whether you're watching The Owl House or Shira, uh, Nimona uh, just came out from Indy Stevenson. Um, I think a movie released, and you know actors and voice actors as well. Thinking Erica Ishii, Morgana Ignis, uh, plenty of others. Uh, a lot of times, if you don't even realize you're consuming media, um, where LGBTQ people and trans and non-binary people have had uh, an integral role in that work, and being cognizant of that, cognizant of that can help um, as you go have conversations moving forward. I think. When it comes to corporate responsibility, I'll go in the other direction, corporate than individual. Uh, one of the things I always think about is when laws are proposed and debated on the floor, they always get spoken about as if they're happen happening in isolation. Oh, this bill um, banning books around LGBTQ people? Well, it's really about one specific book and it's about one panel on this book out of a thousand panels. Um, it's, well, we're really talking about healthcare for a very, very narrow subset of people. Oh, trans women are women, but maybe in sports, uh, we'll have you just talk about that narrow focus. And the bills get presented incredibly narrowly. But what we see in responses to, you know, Dylan Mulvaney showing up on a can of Bud Light or doing one ad with him. If we see Kim Petras winding up on an issue of Sports Illustrated or Target having some rainbow clothes, we see that the response isn't narrow. The hatred and vitriol is all-encompassing from the right. They seek, as Michael Knowles said, the eradication of trans people from public life. And so I think it's, it's, it's really important for people who care about LGBTQ issues but maybe don't understand the nuance of the policy to recognize here that the policies oftentimes come as a vehicle for the right to try to mainstream a totality of hate. And we see that in the response to um, uh, corporations in particular and sort of the rage that has come towards Sports Illustrated, Target, um, and others. And I think for corporations, it's important that they realize that that backlash that they are seeing is a sliver of what LGBTQ people are facing on a daily basis. And as a reminder, LGBTQ people cannot take our identities off the shelf. We cannot put them in the back of the store. They are who we are 24-7. And so if you truly care about LGBTQ people, both as customers, generally through society and your employees, it's important to make sure that you are not giving to the attacks um, and you understand that now it is more important than ever to be standing up alongside uh, LGBTQ people across the country. Individually, you mentioned, you know, Zoe Zephyr found that she, she is important that she was in the room where the laws were written. To me, that felt like the room where my voice could do the most good because of you know, the skills I developed, because of my, I felt like this was an area I could succeed. If that is, if you are looking for ways to help as an ally, it's about finding the rooms where your voice can do the most good. And sometimes that's 
uh, you know, in, in political work. And sometimes it's in your corporation, uh, pushing for more inclusive policies or, or going up and saying, hey, that conference that we were going to send people to in Florida, we shouldn't be doing it. And here's why. And sometimes it's being the person who shuts down an uncomfortable joke at a dinner table. Wherever your voice can do the most good, particularly if it's rooms where LGBTQ people are not presently. Making sure that you are standing up, having the courage to do so, because when you stand up in those moments, you will very quickly realize that millions of Americans are standing up in rooms all across this country in support of one another. Wow. Thank you so much for joining us today, both of you. Um, what an incredible conversation, um, certainly to benefit and enrich all of the listeners that we have within the corporate space and in journalism and beyond. So deeply appreciate hearing from you and want to wish you both very happy pride with lots of queer and trans joy present this month. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Happy pride. Happy pride. Thanks again. And that's a wrap for this episode. Many thanks to you for working with us. And until next time, keep it authentic. All day, every day. Authentic 365 is brought to you by global communications firm, Edelman. 